welcome back to another episode of the Elephant in the Womb podcast. Today I have back on with me Kayla, the pediatric sleep specialist I had on in October. She was on episode 7 and we had discussed SIDS, safe sleep, and she answered a bunch of mostly infant-related sleep questions. Today I have her back on just to answer questions. Everyone submitted questions on Twitter and Instagram and they've all been covered in some way, shape, or form in this episode. Most of the questions today are actually toddler sleep questions as opposed to infant, but there are still some infant sleep questions covered as well. So it's pretty applicable to a wide variety of people. I will likely have Caleb back on in the future because she's always so great to have on. She always does such a good job with all of the questions. So if you didn't get your questions submitted this time, don't worry because there will likely be another opportunity for that in the near future. Anyway, without further ado, here is today's episode. Just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast should be considered medical advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. If you have a medical question, please seek help from your primary care provider. So... Kayla, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? How's everything going? It's going pretty well, you know, just uh, trekking through the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> right, right. Um, it's been a while since you've been on. For those of you who don't know, Kayla and I did do an episode before ca- talking about SIDS and safe sleep. So we also answered a bunch of questions in that episode. And today, Kayla's going to be answering even more questions. <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny. I, I love the variety of questions that we get when we open it up to questions because there are so many different topics to cover when it comes to sleep with not just babies, but toddlers too, that you end up with this like spectrum of questions to answer. Yeah. And there's actually like a lot of toddler sleep questions this time. So I'm kind of excited about Amazing. that. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I actually, I love working with toddlers because so much of the challenge with toddlers has more to do with the relationship than it does to do with the sleep. And it's a little bit easier to control almost because it's more within the parent's control, you know? Right. Right. The easier factors to kind of adjust than exactly. newborns. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I got a really general question. So I think I'll start with that one. Somebody asked how many hours of sleep should kind of each age group get? And I think they were referring mostly to infant sleep, but I guess also a little bit into the toddler age. Right. Okay. So, you know, it's a difficult question to answer. And I think that when you talk to people who do more of the, like the sleep training, they will give you like very specific charts on, you know, how many hours they should be getting within the daytime, how many hours they should be getting at night. The challenge that I have with that is that it really doesn't take into account each individual baby's temperament. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, whether they're a high sleep total baby or a low sleep total baby. And so you can look at these charts and for two babies, the same age, you can have one baby who's sleeping, let's say, you know, 11 hours total in a 24 hour period. And another who's doing, let's say 14 or 15 or 16 hours total, and both are considered normal. And so there's this huge range of what you can expect from your baby or toddler. And so I actually really try to stay away from giving parents a specific number, Mm -hmm. because I think that it causes a lot of stress for parents if their babies or their toddlers are kind of like the outliers on either end, whether they're like super low sleep totals or super high sleep totals. So like my middle son, I would consider a very, very high sleep total kid. I had to 
cut his naps at almost four. Actually, I think he was over four because it interfered with him being able to go to school. So he's like a really high sleep total kid. And on the other extreme, I'm working with a nine month old right now that we're transitioning to a one nap schedule, which is like really, really early because this baby was just not doing well with so much daytime sleep. It was impacting nights. And so that's a kind of a long way of saying, I don't like giving a specific answer to that because I think it's more important to really look at what your baby's needs are and what their wake window needs are and whether the daytime sleep is impacting the nights at all. Right. Is there like, um, like, I guess for adults, I know that, I mean, the data is kind of up in the air, but they say like, we should get roughly around seven to eight hours of sleep at like a certain age, basically. And that right. teenagers, for example, usually clock more sleep, which generally is true because of growing. Yeah. Um, so is there like a minimum amount of sleep in a day that a baby or toddler should be getting? So again, it's, it's kind of hard, like in the same way that you and I would, you know, we have similar lifestyles, we are similar in age, we're going to have different sleep needs. It's kind of the same thing. I would say I'd focus less on the number of hours and more on whether or not your child is thriving. And so if you have a baby who just seems exhausted all the time, Mm -hmm. that's a better indication of the fact that they might not be getting enough sleep rather than watching the clock. Because like I said, there's such a wide range of what's normal. And in the same way that you said, you know, teenagers need more sleep because they're growing and developing. It's the same thing with babies. So obviously, you know, a newborn is going to need more sleep than a six month old because they're going to have to compensate for the level of brain growth. Right. Right. But I think it's more important to look at what your baby is doing, whether they seem well rested and whether they're meeting their milestones. And if they're not doing any of those things, then look and see if sleep is part of the picture. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. That's kind of like the advice we give when um, people say their child has a fever, (laughs) which sounds funny. Um, But I always say, look at their symptoms and how they're acting as well, because babies can get fevers and it cannot bother them. Be totally fine. Yeah. So, so there's no, not necessarily a need to treat at at that point, depending on what the fever is. Um, But, you know, if they're lethargic and and kind of acting sick or irritable, like more than normal, then that's when we want to look at treatment or we want to look at follow-up. So it's it's the same kind of thing. We have to look at their function. I think that's a much better indicator than a number. (laughs) And I think, and I say this all the time, like in my Instagram post, that I think that we have this habit of sort of like pathologizing sleep. And it's really the only thing that we we look at our kids and look at their development that we expect them to fit into such an extreme box, right? Everything else is on a spectrum. Um, even when it comes to things like development, it's on yeah. a spectrum. Sleep is really the only thing that we have these, I think, very high expectations of our kids. And I think a lot of that does come from the information that we are given that a lot of it is not really accurate or it's not you know, appropriate anymore because it was developed at a time when we didn't know what we know now. So I think you're hundred percent right. I really think that it's important to look at each individual and know whether your, your child is thriving or whether they're struggling. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. It's the same for adults. Like my husband and I sleep totally different amounts and we're the same age and we generally do the same things each day. I mean, like we have different jobs, but in other than that, it's the same. So people forget that kids are also people. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my God. You're so right. I, I totally agree. Yeah. So next question, uh, let's go into a little bit about baby sleep. Why does my seven month old wake up every hour during the night for five to 10 minutes? Okay. 
There could be a variety of reasons for that. I would <laughs> say the first thing I would want to know is how long it's been going on for, because when babies hit any kind of developmental milestones, they hit that sleep progression. Sleep is going to become more interrupted and it's not unheard of to have hourly wakes um, when they're going through those periods. Mm -hmm. Usually though, any kind of sleep progression, you're talking somewhere between like two to at the sort of like extreme four weeks of sleep interruption at most. And seven months is a common time when you might see a sleep progression. Like they usually hit it somewhere in eight to 10 month range, but it, it kind of coincides with um, whether they're hitting their developmental, developmental milestones early. And so if you have a baby who let's say is crawling earlier, is pulling to stand earlier, anything like that, it's not unheard of that they would hit sleep progressions earlier as well. So if it's something that's sort of like a moment in time where sleep is really interrupted, then I would say your goal at that time is really just to support your baby through it um, and get sleep by any means necessary so that they're not heading into bedtime overtired because overtiredness can cause hourly wakes. Right. If the hourly wakes are something that have been going on long-term, that's when we want to look at the big picture and see if there's anything else going on that could be impacting sleep. And this is where the approach that I take differs a lot from your more traditional sleep training. Um, and any holistic sleep coach who you talk to will, will say the same thing that I'm about to say, which is that sleep is kind of just a symptom of other things in many, in many cases. And mm -hmm. so if you have hourly wakes, Sometimes it's tied to the schedule if there's overtiredness, things like that. But more often than not, hourly wakes are a sign of something else going on. So for example, it could be an issue with ferritin levels. It could be an issue with tethered oral ties. Um, it could be an issue with you know, digestion. Uh, so I would want to look at all of those other factors if we've already sort of eliminated the option of it being from a progression to make sure that we are addressing whatever that underlying issue is that will then allow us to improve sleep. But in those cases, sleep is often just a symptom of something else. Yeah, that makes sense. It, and it continues to be throughout your life. You know, when you have disruptive exactly. sleep or insomnia, it's often caused by something else. Exactly. Um, unless it's environmental or something, but you, pr you figure that out pretty quickly, usually. Exactly. Exactly. So someone else asked about kind of the same uh, progression, eight to nine months, um, lasting longer than expected. So it looks like there's this about four weeks. So I guess at that maximum, they ask, how do we get out of it? Okay. That's a great question. So I think the first thing to know is that every baby reacts differently to different progressions. So I'll give you an example from my own son. My third, his, he's like generally speaking, a very easygoing kid and has been since the beginning. The progressions haven't been awful for him. He turned two at the beginning of the month and hit that 24 month progression. And it has been an absolute disaster. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like it has, it has just been awful. I don't remember it being anything like this with my other kids, but it has been horrific and it's lasted a good month at this point. And so for him, because there's so much else going on for him, he had this huge language burst. There's lots, the weather's nicer. He's finally getting time outside. You know, there's so much going on for him that he's reacting more to that progression than he did to earlier progressions. So sometimes that happens, especially if those progressions are tied, like I said, to developmental milestones. And in that eight to 10 month range, the other thing that you throw into the mix is separation anxiety, which often starts to right. keep around the nine month mark. And so 
if you're finding that things have gotten really bad and you're having trouble getting out of it, first, I want to identify whether it, like I said, whether it's a sleep issue or whether it's more of a connection issue, right? If separation anxiety is really driving the issues with the sleep, then we want to look at giving the child opportunities to connect more during the day. So they feel more comfortable separating from the parent at night. Mm -hmm. So that's generally where I would start from. But at the same time, because they're in that, that zone where they could start to be making a, a nap transition, we also want to look at the daytime schedule and make sure that the daytime sleep needs are still matching their needs at night. And so sometimes when you hit that roughly 10 month mark, we need to start capping the morning nap to sort of protect the afternoon nap um, right. because they're not quite ready for a one nap day, but they still need less than the typical two nap day. And so if you find that your progression is turning into just like everything falling apart, those are the kinds of things that I would want to look at and make sure that we're kind of covering all of our bases before assuming it's just the progression to blame. Right. Yeah. I know people like, like I, and I'm, am not a victim of this, but I have also done this. I've blamed it on progression. <laughs> um, but yeah. it can definitely be other factors contributing as well. Yeah. And I was one of those people who Maggie went through her, like, I guess, eight to 10 month progression at seven months. Um, right, and that's exactly. because she crawled earlier and she ended up exactly. walking earlier at the tail end of it as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. So there was so much going on and yeah, definitely, definitely can be so many different things contributing to the issue. And when a progression lasts for a long time, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that, you know, you're kind of dealing with a different baby, right? Like there really mm -hmm. is a big difference developmentally between let's say an eight month old and a 10 month old. And so you do have to factor in what's going on developmentally, whether their needs have changed because they've grown and they don't need as much daytime sleep. And if they get too much daytime sleep, it's going to create more issues at night because the balance of day and night sleep is off. Yeah. It's so complicated. So complicated. It's, it's like, you know, that, that meme of like that guy standing at a chalkboard, writing like all those complicated math equations. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that's what I do with my clients because I'm like, oh my God, there's so many factors that we have to consider. And if we move this piece, then this piece moves and it's like a puzzle. Right. And so that's part of the reason why, I mean, for many reasons, I don't offer any guarantees, but that's part of the reason why I say to my clients, I really like to take time and not rush into anything when we're making changes, because we kind of need to see how a child reacts to change number one before we can put in change number two and three, because there's so many moving pieces. No, exactly. Yeah. It totally reminds me of that meme now. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, every time this happens, I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm doing this like really, and I am not a math person. I'm like, this is why I didn't go into any kind of like science field. So this was not my thing, but that's what I feel like I do a lot of the time. It's like, okay, if we shift this thing, this is going to move. And if we shift that, this is going to move. And so it's like a trickle down effect, you know? So it really is a bit of a puzzle that we have to figure out. And I think that's where parents really get tripped up as they're just like so deep into it that they can't see the forest for the trees. And that's when they really need help to say, okay, I need somebody who can take a step back and look at the full picture and figure out what's going on. And often to me, it's super obvious because I'm looking at it with a fresh set of eyes, but with my own kids, I'll often call my other sleep specialist friends and be like, guys, I'm so deep into this. I have no idea what to do. You have to tell me how to fix my own kid because you just get very overwhelmed. And so it's not necessarily that parents don't have the answers. It's that they're so connected to it that mm -hmm. sometimes they just need help to figure out what to do next. For sure. Sometimes it's nice to have an extra pair of eyes or an outer view of the situation Exactly. to put it in yeah. perspective. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
So someone else asked, how do you have your one month old sleep somewhere other than mom's arms are right against mom? Whenever I lay her down, she wakes up not wanting to continue co-sleeping. Okay. So this, it's a hard question because part of it has to do with sort of the biological need for proximity, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at sleep from an attachment perspective, you know, babies attach through proximity to their primary caregiver in the first year of life. And so for them to feel safe, they basically need to see, hear, touch, or smell their primary caregiver. And when that isn't going on, they do wake more frequently because they literally feel unsafe. And when you look at the science behind it, some of the the studies they've done on even just like, um, mother baby breathing. It's fascinating on how having that extra contact and connection actually helps regulate the baby's system. And so that sort of part of it is that you do have to set realistic expectations about what baby needs in terms of that contact and connection. Right. But at the same time, if you have a baby who literally can only sleep in arms, it's probably less so about the connection and more so about, again, an underlying issue. So oftentimes what we see with babies who need to be held for sleep is that they actually need to be in a more of an upright position. And that could either be because of reflux. It could Mm -hmm. be because of breathing issues as a result of tethered oral ties. There's there's many, many reasons for it. And so I would want to look really specifically at what's going on. I'd want to look at the birth experience. I'd want to look at, you know, whether baby is having any trouble latching, whether the baby's favoring one side of their head over the other, all of these different pieces, because probably in that kind of case, it's less so about the sleep and more so about something else going on. Right. I never made like, it makes sense because we promote skin to skin for like breathing and just like homeostasis regulation basically. And I never really thought of it like later on being related to breathing, like a breathing issue, maybe they need that to help promote good breathing, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Well, because what happens, especially if it's something like a tethered oral tie, what happens is if they're lying flat on their back, if they don't have, uh, you know, optimal tongue positioning, their tongue actually falls more to the back of their throat, right? Right. And so that creates a breathing issue. And so if they're in a more upright position, gravity is going to pull the tongue forward, for example, if it's a tongue issue, for example, gravity is going to pull the tongue forward. And so they're going to be able to breathe better. As soon as you lie them down, they're not able to breathe as well. Mm -hmm. They're going to wake up more frequently. The only way to sort of stop that cycle is to address whatever is that's causing the issue to begin with. And oftentimes, especially with like really little babies, it does have more to do with, you know, a tethered oral tie um, if there is a breathing component to it. Right. It's like more likely to be a functional issue at that age. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So someone else asked, my five month old won't go to sleep without crying. We use white noise and he eats before nap. He just hates sleeping. We must comfort him to sleep every time for up to 30 minutes. Any tips? Okay. So I think part of this is again, about setting realistic expectations of what to anticipate from our kids. And I think that the sleep training industry in general has set these sort of unrealistic expectations. And so parents sort of unwittingly put that on their kids at five months of age. It is absolutely normal for your child to need support to go back to sleep. If it's taking 30 minutes to get them to sleep at bedtime, and I'm talking like lights off, you know, ready for sleep, not the Mm -hmm. whole bedtime routine. Right. But if it's taking 30 minutes for them to fall asleep, I'd want to look at the daytime schedule and make sure that they're actually not undertired or overtired, right? Mm -hmm. Because if they, if their wake windows are too short and they're not ready for bed, when you try and put them to bed, you're going to have a fight because they're literally just not ready. And at the same time, if they're under, if they're overtired rather, um, 
and you've sort of missed that window, they're going to have that spike in cortisol and get that second wind. And they're also going to give you a fight because they're not ready. And so I'd want to look and make sure that the daytime schedule is really matching the baby's sleep needs. But I also would want to set realistic expectations for the parent in knowing that it is normal for a baby to need support to get to sleep. It's not reasonable to expect, expect the baby to quote unquote self-soothe. That's, that's really a very unfortunate myth that has been pushed on parents that sets completely unrealistic expectations. And so we think we've done something wrong to our babies or our babies are broken or whatever. They're, you know, they hate sleep. They're terrible sleepers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When in reality, our expectations are not in line with biology. Right. Right. No, that exactly. That makes sense. I think that we think that crying I guess people don't realize that crying is a coping mechanism in a way. And it's a way of letting us know what's going on as well. So right, it's communication. It's yeah. Communication. So they're kind of telling us, you know, I need a little bit more support at those times. And I, what you're saying, what you said is that, you know, there's kind of some false advertising about the fact that that means yeah. that it's a bad thing or that it shouldn't be happening. Right. But a five month old is so little, like, even so some, little. sometimes when I put my daughter to sleep and she's almost 17 months old, she'll cry for like one minute and then she goes to sleep, but she doesn't go to sleep instantly. And she's very good at going to sleep. She has no problems, but it takes her a couple minutes still. So it's not like it's ever going to be, you lay them down and they just fall asleep instantly. Like, right. Like that's, we would never expect that of ourselves, right? No. Your head hits the pillow and you're instantly out cold. Of course not. Right. Not, not very often. Maybe if I'm like absolutely exhausted. Like you had a really bad <laughs> night, right? Exactly. Yeah. But like, no, most of the time, I think they say it's about an average of like 15 minutes minutes for an adult to fall asleep. Yeah. So yeah, like yeah. we we have to be realistic. If it takes us that long to fall asleep, imagine a baby's busy brain trying to fall asleep as exactly. well. <laughs> Toddler sleep. Can you give an idea of an easy bedtime routine to follow for a toddler? Okay, this is a great question, and I get it all the time, which is actually why I have a free bedtime guide available for download. Amazing. Um, so if anybody, yeah, if anybody's struggling with toddler bedtimes, if you go to the link in my Instagram bio, you can download it from there for free. So my Instagram is official sleeping beauties. So I think with toddlers, the most important thing to know when it comes to bedtime is that they're acutely aware of the separation that's going to take place at bedtime. And usually when you're talking about toddlers, they're either in a preschool program or a daycare, or they're spending their day with some other caregiver as opposed to, you know, mom and dad. And so they spent most of the day separated and they really, really need that connection time before they're going to be okay separating for nighttime sleep. And so mm -hmm. I always tell parents to build some form of connection into the bedtime routine so that they don't have this constant battle with their toddler where, you know, the toddler is asking for the moon and the stars. And part of it has to do with wanting that extra connection time. So one great idea is to create, you know, a special bedtime box for example, where you have toys or activities that are designated only for bedtime that your toddler knows it's a reliable activity. They get to choose which parent they want to do it with. And they have that, you know, even if it's only five or 10 minutes of completely uninterrupted connection time, it can go a long way in making the rest of the bedtime routine go much smoother because you've now engaged their attachment instincts. And so they're going to be more likely to follow your lead for the rest of the routine. 
the routine itself doesn't have to be the same in every home. And like you can fit in whatever makes sense for you. So in mm-hmm. some homes, it's a bath or a shower every night. In some homes, it's reading books. In some homes, it's a combination. It really doesn't matter what's part of your bedtime routine, as long as it's fairly predictable for your child. And there's lots of opportunity for connection time with them. I think the other really critical piece with toddlers, and this is where parents kind of get tripped up a little bit, especially if they're attachment focused, is there's kind of this very fine line between attachment and permissive parenting. And you can absolutely be attachment and be focused on your child's needs without being permissive. And I think it's really critical that parents maintain their role as the caretaker. And the best resource I can give for this is Gordon Newfeld and all of his research and Dr. Deborah McNamara. They're amazing at sort of walking parents through exactly what this looks like, mm-hmm. but you really want to make sure the parents are in control. And so it's about creating boundaries and loving limits so that your child understands that when you say something, that's what's going to happen. And no matter how much they push and push and push, it's not going to be a free for all. And so I think that's where parents get a little bit tripped up when it comes to toddler bedtimes is toddlers that ask for the moon and the stars. And the parents are like, okay, I'm just going to give them whatever they want so that they'll go to bed. But the Mm -hmm. problem with that is that you're just going to be in the same cycle every single night. And so part of breaking that cycle is sort of reframing the relationship so that the parent is the caretaker and the child is then dependent on the parent. We actually do like, uh, we have one of those like shape blocks that you put the little yeah. shapes into the holes. That's what we do before bedtime. A lot of the time for Maggie, um, cause she's Amazing. getting really good at it now. So we like either my husband will do it with her or I'll do it with her. And she just focuses on it so much. It helps her like wind down a lot as well. Cause it's like a quiet activity, but it yeah. also like gives her that time with me or my husband. And then we both put her in to bed and she like kisses us goodnight and goes to bed. But I feel like right. doing, doing the little like game almost right before bed is really important for her. So yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think the other thing is that for some kids, bedtime needs to be, you know, really calm and very like Zen like, right. But then you yeah. have other kids who are much more like sensory seeking. Yeah. And usually it's the mom saying to the dad, like, don't rile them up before <laughs> bed, you know, and the dad's like throwing the kids around. But for some kids, that's actually what they need before bed is yeah, you more sensory the- seeking. Yeah. That's right. They need that sensory input before. Exactly. And so I think the most important thing is just sort of like setting the bedtime mood. So you want the lights dim so that their body has a chance to build up that melatonin. A bath is really good for that too, because the change in temperature coming out of the bath sort of signals to Mm -hmm. their body to start building that melatonin, but it's absolutely okay. And I often recommend adding some rough and tumble to the bedtime routine. If you have a child who needs that kind of sensory input, and it's in my experience, it's more common that the boys need that versus the girls. But I mean, obviously there's lots of girls who need it as well yeah um, but in my house like my daughter is not the one who needs that my boy is like <laughs> we don't do that with them they're like bedtime isn't going to happen and so you know if you have a kid who you know really likes that sort of rough and tumble play don't be afraid to integrate that into the bedtime routine whether they're a toddler or whether they're three or four months old if they need that sensory input you can do it at any age Yeah, I think that's important to remember that like every bedtime routine is going to look different. I always say that with everything to people. It's like, we're all different and we all have different kids. So it's great for us to share all these things, but they're all going to be different. So like something that works for me won't work for you. Do what works for your Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. (laughs) So someone asked, how can I help my older child settle into a longer sleep pattern? And if I remember correctly, they said that they're child who I believe was about two and a half 
or two was sleeping only five to six hours and like per day. Oh boy. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like highly unusual. I'd want to know if that's their nighttime sleep and whether they have any daytime sleep. And so if they do, if potentially they're, they need to consolidate that into just nights So get two and a half. It's not crazy to think that they might be ready to drop their nap. Mm-hmm. And so if they're having a nap during the day and bedtime ends up being really, really late, and they're up really early the next morning. Sometimes it has to do with the daytime sleep and we need to get rid of that nap in order to add that sleep total back to the nighttime. Um, part of it again could potentially have to be connection, but I think the more important question, if it's really actually only five or six hours is whether or not there's an underlying medical condition. And at that age, I'd want to look and make sure there isn't any like sleep apnea going on. And at that point, Mm. you really want to reach out to your primary healthcare provider and ask for a referral for a sleep study. If there's any indication that potentially that's what's going on. So if they're snoring, if there's really restless sleep, if they have trouble getting back to sleep, I would want to make sure that we're sort of covering all those bases. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if there's any family history of anything like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people actually don't know this, but there are actually sleep study clinics that are specifically for children in the GTA, which is great. Uh, I believe the one in the area is called Youthdale Sleep Clinic. They're phenomenal. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I have a relationship with the doctor who runs it. And if you are not keen on going to a sleep lab with your child because you're worried about it being really interrupting their routine or you're concerned about COVID, um, they also have like sort of like a subsidiary of Youthdale where they can rent you a home sleep study machine. Right. So obviously at that point you're you're paying out of pocket, but for some parents, like it is definitely worth doing that as opposed to spending the night in a lab. So there is that option as well. And my understanding from Dr. Shapiro who runs Youthdale is that they actually find that the, the home studies are even a little bit more accurate than the lab ones. It makes sense. Um, Yeah. Because the, the machinery that they're using and the technology that they're using is equally as good, but then you're in your own environment. And so you're Mm -hmm. getting a better night's sleep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I always feel like sometimes that's kind of the, the pitfall of sleep study clinics is that you're yeah. not in your normal environment. So it's, yeah. it's not, the, not likely to be exactly the same level of sleep that exactly. you normally get. It's like when you're traveling and exactly. you try to sleep, you don't always sleep as well. Right. So yeah. yeah, they're looking less so at like the total sleep and more so at like the actual, you know, yeah, the wake up. when you're yeah. exactly yeah. the wake ups, the breathe, the breathing is a really the big piece of it, yeah. but if, if you're like really averse to like spending a night in a sleep lab, which I totally don't blame you. We've been, <laughs> I'm actually waiting on a study for my four-year-old and they called us in December and we're like, you can come in now. And I was like, there is no way I'm yeah. spending a night in a strange place in December, 2020. Like it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> so we sort of put it off and we're debating doing the home study. So it's absolutely just as accurate if you've been putting it off for that reason, but it does take a long time to get um, a spot once that referral goes in. Mm-hmm. So if it's something that you're sort of considering, I would get the referral sooner rather than later. And then you can always decide whether or not you want to do it when your time comes. Next question, tips for transitioning to one nap a day from two, a little bit of detail, baby not sleeping long enough during single nap later is cranky, tired, rubbing eyes, but will not take a second nap. No trouble going down at night or for morning nap have already tried shifting morning nap 
like forward to midday didn't make a difference in sleep duration or afternoon sleepiness? Okay, so usually rather than dropping the afternoon nap, I actually recommend dropping the morning nap and mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it cold turkey. What I would do instead is start capping the morning nap for two reasons. Number one, it will give you a longer wake window between nap one and nap two. And number two is it's going to reduce the amount of daytime sleep they're getting before they're getting that afternoon nap. And ideally you want to, you know, slowly pull back on the morning sleep so that the afternoon nap becomes that midday nap. It's much easier to sort of shift your 2 PM nap to noon than it is to drop right. that nap and shift your 9 AM nap to noon. It's a much larger window. So I would say rather than, you know, having a battle come nap two is I would pull back on nap one. And so if your baby's currently sleeping, let's say an hour for nap one, you might try 45 minutes first and then maybe a half an hour, cut that back. And also at the same time, give yourself that wider wake window. So rather than then moving nap two earlier, you keep nap two at the same time that it is right now and give yourself that extra 15 minutes or half an hour for a wake window. And then hopefully um, your baby won't fight you on nap two. I find most kids don't do well cold turkey nap, like two naps to one nap, you really need to take your time and make mm -hmm. that transition. Mm -hmm. And the transition from two to one naps happens like roughly speaking between 13 and 18 months. And so it's such a wide range that it is really helpful to work on reducing the amount of daytime sleep you're getting in nap one, rather than just getting rid of it entirely to begin with. Right. Yeah. I remember it being a slow transition. Like yeah. it almost took for us, I think it took like a month, maybe even a month and a half yeah. to really cut. Maybe even longer. Yeah. 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 And, and then once it was like established, it was fine. But it, I remember it, it would be like one day she was, it seemed like it was ready. And then the next day she'd go back to kind of having two at well, like different Well, that's lengths. the other thing. Exactly. Like sleep isn't linear. And so it's, it's okay. If you're trying to transition to any nap, so it doesn't have to be two to one, it could be three to two, whatever it is. It's totally fine to have days look different. And you can say, okay, I know that like my baby can handle, let's say three days on a one nap schedule, but then by day four, they're a mess. And so it's totally mm -hmm. fine to throw a second nap back in, get them caught up a little bit, pay back a little bit of that sleep debt, and then go back to your one nap schedule. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And like, once you've committed to something, there's nothing to say that you can't sort of move backwards to meet whatever their needs are at that particular time. So in a follow-up to that, then this question fits in really well. Once you've dropped a nap, what do you do when baby snoozes extra? So if they're down to one nap, but they take a second nap in the car one day. So I think part of it is knowing what your baby's sleep needs are. And so if you know that your baby's going to fall asleep in the car, then I would probably try and avoid the car at times when they're more likely to be sleepy. If you are making that transition, because if they actually don't need that amount of daytime sleep, you're probably going to end up with bedtime being pushed just because a, they've gotten more sleep than they need. And B it's probably happening later in the day. Um, but I think that like, you don't have to panic when something like that happens, you know, it is what it is. It's a little blip. You just adjust the rest of your day. And the right. next day is a new day and you sort of just start over. But if you find that every couple of days, they need that little bit of extra sleep, even if it's literally just like 15 or 20 minutes. And I actually <laughs> was talking about this in stories on the weekend because my son was up for the day at four 30. This is the 24 month Lovely. progression coming back to haunt me. <laughs> yeah. It was brutal. And so I was like, there's no way he's going to make it to his one o'clock nap. And if he does, the nap's going to be super short because he's overtired and then bedtime's going to be a mess. And so I was like, I don't care that he's two. I'm throwing in a car nap in the morning for 20 minutes 
just to get him through to nap time. And <laughs> it made a world of a difference, but it doesn't really matter what age they're at. You can absolutely do that. If you find they just need that little bit of extra sleep, I just wouldn't make it a full nap. I'd make it a cat nap. I think avoiding cars, if you know that they're prone to falling asleep in the car when it's like around nap time is good because I find even a short nap too soon, like close to nap time can throw off the whole day. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Then you end up nap later and then bedtime's messed up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's when you have to pull out your calculator again and figure out when you have to put them down. It's like the whole thing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Someone else asked, uh, my 16 month old still doesn't sleep through the night. Is she just a bad sleeper? Is there something else we can do? It's really normal that babies at that age don't sleep through the night. It's Mm -hmm. normal for two-year-olds not to sleep through the night, right? I think that part of the challenge that parents face, again, has to do with the information we are fed from sort of like the big names that give us information on sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the really common things that parents are told is that babies have to learn how to link sleep cycles so they can sleep through the night, right? Right. The thing is that nobody links sleep cycles. Babies, toddlers, adults, we all of us don't link sleep cycles. We are all biologically built to wake between sleep cycles and assess whether or not we have a need. And the reason is, you know, as much as humans have progressed over millennia, sleep biology hasn't changed at all. And so when we were, you know, cavemen or whatever, and there's like a lurking saber toothed tiger outside the cave, we needed to wake between sleep cycles to assess our environment and make sure that it was still safe. And so that still exists. So for adults, you know, we'll wake between sleep cycles. And if we have a need, we're going to get up and use the washroom. We're going to get a drink of water, check the clock, whatever. And if we wake and we don't have a need, we're going to just roll over and go back to sleep and never remember that we woke up to begin with. And the same thing is true for babies and toddlers. The difference is that they may not be able to address the needs on their own and comfort is still a valid need. And so you might have a 16 month old or an 18 month old or a two and a half year old who is waking at night and all they need is to either come into bed with you or they just need a cuddle or sometimes they even need a feed at that age. Um, And that's going to be enough to get them back to sleep. And it's, there's nothing wrong with your baby. It's very, very normal. I mean, there are definitely things we can do to look at the schedule and make sure that the wakes aren't being caused either by overtired or undertired. But in general, wakes at 16 months are not a cause for concern as long as it's not, you know, like I said, hourly wakes. If it's like a once or twice a night thing and they're very easy to get back to sleep, I really, I think like, you know, congratulations, you have a normal baby, right? It's really very, very normal. And I feel like even babies who, who do sleep through the night, they probably do wake up at some they point, do. you just don't do. hear it or know it because you don't hear- they just deal with it themselves. So it also has to do with how baby copes best as well, right? Exactly. Like- well, that's the thing. If they have a need that they can attend to on their own, they're going to go back to sleep. And if they mm-hmm. have a need that they can't, and like I said, comfort is valid, they're going to call for help. I actually, I've been trying to catch it on video for weeks and I finally got it on video last night. My son woke up, he sat up in his crib. He took a drink of water from the cup that he has in his crib and he laid back down and went back to sleep. So I'm going to make a reel on Instagram about that because it's a perfect example of waking between sleep cycles and having a need and whether they can attend to it or not. And so at 16 months, they are still little, you know, and they might not be able to attend to that need. And especially if it's hunger or comfort, like it's not unusual for a baby at that age to still need a feed at night, you know?
someone else asked, my baby was a colic child who only fell asleep with a bottle. How do we transition without the bottle at two and a half years? Okay, so those are kind of almost two unrelated questions. The colic, <laughs> so I have like a whole, we could talk about colic in and of itself. That's like almost an entire oh, yeah. podcast episode. We should do itself. that. We should do that. Actually. We should. We can absolutely do that. <laughs> um, I don't think that's necessarily related to the need to feed to sleep. Right. Uh, the two are completely disconnected. I think the question now at two and a half is, do we need to change associations around that? And if it's an association that's no longer working for you or no longer working for your child, or you have concerns like at two and a half, I would have concerns about a bottle in terms of, you know, their teeth. We want to make sure that they're brushing their teeth after they have milk or anything like that. Breast milk is different, but if it's cow's milk, for example, we do want to make sure that they're getting mm-hmm. their teeth brushed after that. And so part of it will be looking at changing associations. The other piece of it, and this is always, I know I kind of sound like a broken record and there are so many different opinions on, you know, whether or not tongue ties are a thing. Like everybody in the holistic sleep world absolutely buys into it. There is a big shift in the dental community. My father-in-law is an orthodontist. And he and I have been talking about this a lot lately. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, he, he was trained, you know, 45 years ago. So he obviously never learned about it, but all of these conferences he goes to now all talk about, you know, the, the impact of oral restrictions on feeding, on sleep, on speech. Um, And so what I would want to look at with that particular child is whether or not there's any kind of oral restriction. And part of it has to do with regulation skills. The vagus nerve is what helps our entire system regulate, right? If we are stressed, stimulating the vagus nerve can help calm us down. One of the ways that it is stimulated is by contact with the palate, okay? And so if you have any kind of oral restriction that doesn't allow your tongue to sit on the palate the way that it should, you need other ways of stimulating that. And so that's often when we see babies or toddlers who nurse more frequently than we would expect or nurse, but not for nutritional purposes, the nipple, whether it's a bottle or a breast is serving that purpose that the tongue isn't able to do. And so I would want to look really carefully at that case Mm -hmm. and make sure that there isn't a reason the baby needs that in order to fall asleep. And my gut is telling me it probably has something to do with um, oral function, oral positioning. Someone else asks, my older child wakes up every night between 1 and 4 a.m. Any tips? So that is a split night. Those are terrible. I feel for you. They are the worst (laughs) to deal with. The biggest trouble with a split night is that they're caused both by overtiredness and undertiredness. So the best (laughs) way to look at it is to figure out what is calling, what is, you know, causing this sort of unbalance in the daytime sleep. So if they're getting too much daytime sleep, that could cause a split. If they're not getting enough, that could cause it as well. And so we first need to look at what the cause is, and then we'd be able to find a way of sort of closing that split. It takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. And that's Mm -hmm. when I would definitely encourage you to reach out so that I can like basically create a framework for you to be able to do that. But most of the time, a split night is being caused by an imbalance in the daytime sleep. Unless of course your baby's waking and they're like really, really upset or uncomfortable. And then we have to look at whether or not, again, there's anything underlying, like, are they having discomfort? Exactly. And kind of discomfort, but most of the time it has to do with an imbalance in daytime sleep. Okay. Okay. And I, for some reason, this question makes me excited. <laughs> I don't know why, because we, I've never really <laughs> talked about this before, but any guidance for night terrors? Okay. Great question. There is, 
a lot of sort of conflicting information on when night terrors are actually starting. And so most of the research shows that we don't really see those bad dreams starting until closer to age two, but there are definitely kids that I've worked with that I've seen, you know, from case studies that definitely have what looks like night terrors earlier on as well. So it's, I don't have a scientific answer to that question. I think that if your gut is telling you that your child is having night terrors, that you should definitely try as best as you can to comfort them without waking them. Like, you know, everything you hear mm-hmm. about, you know, any kind of night terrors, you don't want to wake them, but you want to be yeah. there to support them and to make sure that they're safe. But I think again, sometimes any kind of sleep interruptions do come down to whether or not a child is really getting the right amount of sleep. And like the more that sleep seems interrupted, the more I want to look at the schedule and make sure that their sleep needs are being met. But it's a tough one because it's really hard to address it unless it's a toddler who can tell you that they've had a bad dream. It's very hard to know exactly what's going on. How do you, how do you even deal with that when it's a very young child? It's exactly, it's tough. And again, that's where a sleep study could become interesting because again, they are reading those brain waves, but I think I would probably look first rather than, you know, being concerned that there's, you know, a functional issue. I would probably Mm -hmm. look first at the schedule and make sure that we're not seeing, like I said, like an imbalance where baby's either really, I'm probably more so overtired in that case, but we mm-hmm. want to make sure that they're getting the sleep that they need so that they aren't having these night terrors. Right. And this wasn't a question on the list, but I was just thinking about it for some reason. When do you generally see like things like sleepwalking and that kind of stuff arise? Like, is that from a pretty young age or? So it's funny. It depends. And a lot of it is actually genetic because it's, it's basically parasomnias, right? Uh-huh. So a lot of the time, things like sleepwalking are actually connected to sleep apnea. And so if there is a family history of sleep apnea and you're noticing, obviously you're not going to have a sleepwalking, you know, nine month old because they're not walking, but <laughs> yeah. they might be doing other things, you know? So I, I would want to like, if you do have a child who sleepwalks, I would want to make sure that there isn't any sign of a, a sleep apnea issue. Um, Mm -hmm. because obviously you're going to want to address that because the quality of their sleep and their breathing is obviously being impacted, but there's, I don't know that I have an answer. I'd probably have to research it a bit more to find out if there's like a specific time when it starts, Mm -hmm. but usually you want to look and make sure there isn't something like sleep apnea going on. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know there, there was a link between that and sleep apnea. I knew it had to do with like, obviously one portion of your brain, not falling completely asleep essentially. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I was thinking about it because of the night terrors, but also because my husband used to sleepwalk. So I was like, oh my God, I hope that doesn't Oh, seriously? Oh my God. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. He is like a oh my God, sleep that's actor. Hilarious. He's going to be so mad that I'm talking about this. Um, yeah. But there's he, actually, a, I wish I could remember her name. There's a woman on TikTok who films, like she has like a hidden camera in her house oh my and God. she films herself sleepwalking. Oh, that's it creepy. Is, yeah. It's, re- it's actually really creepy, but also slightly hilarious. I'm like fascinated by it. I kind of want to message her and be like, I think you need to have a sleep study done. Like this isn't normal, but I'm not going to get into it with her, but it's fascinating to see the things that this woman is doing in the middle of the night. Like, and obviously she has no control over it. Right. It's, it's fascinating to me. I'm so curious. You're going to have to fill me in on the kind of things. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I can tell you that when we first started dating many moons ago, (laughs) he thought there was a snake (laughs) in the bed and pulled me out of the bed like by my oh leg my God. and he was asleep 
so yeah that that was an experience for me I was like should I break up with this guy (laughs) I was gonna say like that's a sign of true love that you stuck with him after that right (laughs) but mostly he's he's a talker but he'll sit up and like talk and do things and like the other night he like thought he hid his phone in the room while he was asleep so he was like looking for it but he doesn't remember oh doing God. any of that. So yeah, it was, it, it seems for him. And I, I don't know if this is like, this is just my theory. It seems to be related to like stress for him. Like I noticed. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah he'll go I was through just going to say that. It. And then when he's yep. stressed out, it's like suddenly it starts happening again. Yeah. Like when yeah. the baby was born, it didn't happen for so long. And I think because he was so tired too, right? Like he was just yeah. sleeping really yeah. heavily. Um, but then now that she sleeps through the night, like after a hard day, a couple hard days at work, I noticed that he starts yeah. like doing it again. So it's really interesting. So I just wondered like what it's linked to and and maybe he needs to see like a sleep therapist like a hypnotherapist yeah seriously seriously because so much of what goes on during the day comes out at night right and obviously like that's a good example with an adult but it's the exact same thing with kids you know Mm -hmm, if you mm -hmm. have a baby who's like hitting a new developmental milestone for example they are going to practice that in their sleep right and so if sleep's becoming super interrupted and they're at the same time working on crawling or working on walking you're going to see that that's what they're doing in the middle of the night that's just the way the brain works yeah yeah I remember Maggie when she learned to stand that's yeah she would wake up doing that in the night and that's yeah. kind of when she yeah. was going through that progression period as well because she was learning that skill but that's how she'd yeah. wake up and she'd cry because she didn't realize how to sit back down at yes. that time yes <laughs> so that was <laughs> yeah that's, that's yeah. so common yeah it's so funny <laughs> How do you balance your child knowing if they need you, you will come and teaching them self-soothing? So how do you balance that? So again, I think that we have to try and avoid this concept of self-soothing because the idea behind self-soothing is that your baby's able to downregulate. And this is the same for toddlers, right? Mm -hmm. Children are not capable of downregulation from a place of stress. Okay. So, and this is true up until I'd say about age, depending on the child, like usually you start seeing those self-regulation skills come out somewhere between age five and seven, but for more highly sensitive kids, it's actually closer to about seven to nine. And so it's not realistic to expect them to be able to do any kind of self-soothing if they are under any kind of stress and stress can be caused just by separation. Okay. Like if a baby is, is in need of comfort and contact and connection, and you are not there for them, that's going to cause stress. They're not going to be able to self-soothe. I think that what this person's probably talking about more has to do with how we set parental boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of it is, is knowing who your child is and knowing what their needs are and figuring out ways to support them that give you the boundaries that you need while also giving them the connection that they need. And so that's going to look different for every child in every home and particularly depending on their age. So I'm going to guess this person is probably talking about a toddler. Do you know? Um, I think it was about a toddler. Yes. Yeah. I can't remember. So part of it is just about, part of it is just about managing whatever the expectation of the toddler is. And like, 
I wouldn't look at it as, as self-soothing. I'd look at it more as having them come up against a futility, right? So mm-hmm. if your child is having a tantrum and this goes daytime, nighttime, bedtime, whatever it is, and this is sort of where like the parent coaching side of things comes in, right? You, you really want to be able to give your child the message that whatever emotion they are experiencing is an acceptable emotion, whether it's, you know, a quote unquote positive emotion versus a negative emotion, all emotions are okay. And they have the opportunity to express those emotions and you're going to support the emotion, but you might not necessarily change your mind. And that's where that boundary piece comes in, right? The key is in how you handle that emotion. So I think that the way that we were all raised is, you know, those negative emotions are bad. So frustration, anger, sadness, those are bad things. If you need to have those emotions, you're going to have to go do it in the corner by yourself. And when you feel like you're done, then you can come talk to me. Right. Yeah. That was the way it was. It was timeouts. It was, you need to collect yourself, whatever it was. I don't like that because I think that you're instituting separation to try and get your child to fit your own needs. What I like seeing from parents instead, and this is where you sort of get that balance of letting them express their emotions while still holding the boundary is your child's upset about something. You basically want to empathize with whatever it is. You know, I understand that you're really frustrated that I'm not going to let you wander around the room in the dark, but it's bedtime. I get mad sometimes too, but unfortunately right now we're not going to do that. Do you need to have a hug? And so it's, you know, you're, you're acknowledging the emotion, you're empathizing with the feeling, you're setting the boundary and you're getting the contact and connection they need. And so I think that that's probably the best way to allow them to come to terms with whatever it is and work through the emotion that they're having without using any kind of separation. Right. Right. So I think that it's a tricky, it really depends on the age of the child, but it's a really tricky balance because you want to make sure, and this is sort of where parents have to really keep their own emotions in check and really work on their own self-regulation skills so that you have the bandwidth to allow your child to express whatever frustration they're having. But you mm-hmm. don't want to stop that emotion from happening because if a child doesn't experience futility, they don't learn a workaround on how to solve that problem for themselves in the future. And so if you, you know, if you go through this fight with them and you allow them to get their way at this bedtime battle, for example, mm-hmm. um, you can expect that the same thing's going to happen the next night, right? right? If you set whatever the expectations are on night number one and you support the emotion and you show them it's okay to be mad, I'm going to stay here with you, but I'm not going to change whatever decision I've made. The next night, they're going to have a different expectation. They're not going to expect that they're going to be able to change your mind. And so I think that's sort of the balance that you have to look for. But I would sort of stay away from this idea of expecting them to manage their own emotion because they're Mm -hmm. just not capable of downregulation when they sort of spiral. And um, Dr. Dan Siegel talks a lot about this where, you know, tantrums come from the upstairs brain versus the downstairs brain. And depending on where the tantrum is coming from, sometimes kids are able to sort of stop their feelings right away and move on. And other times it spirals to the point where like, they just don't have control over that emotion at all. And you need to be there to help them manage it because they just can't do it on their own. It's crazy to think that they can't handle it at such a young age. Like, of course they can't. Right. Most adults can't do it. You know, know? I was going to (laughs) say most, most grown adults can't figure it out still. So um, why do we expect children to? Exactly. And I think a lot of the struggles that parents have with that is that because most of us who are parenting today were raised with, you know, timeouts and separation based Mm -hmm. techniques and things like that, Mm -hmm. we were never given the space to express our emotions as kids. And so when those emotions are expressed, it's super triggering for us. And so I think it's really important to really hone in on what 
things are triggering you so that you can be more mindful in the moment that maybe it's not actually your child's behavior. That's the problem. Maybe it's just the way that you perceive it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That is a really good point. Definitely relevant to our generations. Right. Especially in the middle of COVID, like everything's triggering for parents, right? Like literally everything that happens all day long. Like my husband and I wander around all day long, just like, I don't know how you're censoring this, but we just wander around mumbling like, what the bleep all day long (laughs) under our breath, right? Like, it's just, what is going on here, you know? But a lot of it has to do with our own level of stress and Mm -hmm. the the other things that we have going on. And I think this comes back to sort of where I start with my clients from is really looking at what parents need for self-care. And, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't expect that you're going to be able to parent intentionally when it comes to your kid, because you're going to be scraping the bottom of the barrel. And so the more you can do to you know, meet your needs as a person, not just as a parent, the better able you're going to be to manage your own emotions when your child is triggering you. Absolutely. And there's a higher chance of them triggering you right now when you're locked in a house with them and you can't do as much as normal. So that self-care is extra important. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I am not an expert on, on figuring out how to manage, like, we are all in this together. Like I know the things I should be doing, but it's, it's very hard in the current context of the world, especially if you live in Ontario. Um, (laughs) you know, it's just, I think you have to manage your own expectations of yourself and, and change your expectations of your kids to match what your needs are. And so like, one of the things that goes on in our house is like, we were much more stringent with screen time pre COVID, you know, like that was not, there was very small increments of screen time. And now we're just like, screw it. Like, they need the downtime. We need the downtime. And if we don't give it to them, we are going to lose our minds. And so it's more important to us to have that five or 10 minutes to take a deep breath and reconnect with each other. I'd be like, okay, what's our game plan for the rest of the day mm-hmm, than worrying mm-hmm. about the extra screen time they're getting. And so a lot of it is really about, like, like I said, managing your own expectations and, and handling your own needs so that you can better able, you're better able to parent your own child. Yeah. And I think that is just good advice for parenting in general, whether it comes to yeah. sleep or coping with things like it's just, you have to take care of yourself or else you, you can't take care of someone else to the best of your ability. It's not that you exactly. can't do it at some level, but you're not going to be doing it at, you're, you know, the best way that you can. But we, we have to remember that, you know, as much as we have this idea in our head of what a perfect parent is, there's no such thing as a perfect parent No. other than to say that you are the perfect parent for your child. There's nobody in the world who knows your child better than you do. Mm-hmm. You are the expert on your child. And that is the advice you need to take with you, regardless of what you're looking at, whether it's sleep, whether it's general parenting, whatever it is, you need to think like, what do I feel is the best thing for my child? And regardless of whatever external advice you're getting, you need to trust your gut, you know? Absolutely. And that's also when you, uh, you can use that in like the medical world as well. If you're addressing an issue, yeah. you really feel like something's wrong. Um, make yeah, sure you, you bring have to it advocate. Up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cause that exactly. like, I, I totally believe like parent gut is a thing and, and we are very in tune with our Absolutely. children. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I actually had that experience with my own pediatrician when my second son was born. He like literally cried from the minute he was born until we figured out what was going on. But in the first like six or eight weeks, there really wasn't a clear indication why he was so bothered. Mm-hmm. And I kept going back to my pediatrician saying like, I really believe something's wrong with my baby. And like, he was my second. So I knew it wasn't just like first time parent anxiety. Mm-hmm. And she was the one who said to me, you know, if you think that something's wrong with your baby, we are going to keep digging until we figure out what it is because parental instinct is bang on every time. You know, if you have, you might not know what it is, but if you think something's going on, 
nine times out of ten the parent is right there's something there I like that pediatrician yeah she sounds great she's great she's wonderful (laughs) yes like this podcast hit that subscribe button you can also check out our website at www.elephantinthewomb.ca and subscribe to the blog email list for blog and podcast updates